Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to John 3, excuse me, John 13, 34. John 13, 34 to 35. That'll be our key text. We're going to reference some other passages, of course, but that'll be where we're going to camp out for most of the time here. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. I'll go ahead and read that. We'll pray and we'll uh, get with our study. John 13, 34, these are the words from God. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Amen. Uh, Let's pray together. Our Father in God, we first and foremost give thanks to you. We are compelled to give thanks first because you are the giver of all good gifts. And we have much to be grateful for. We ask now that as we examine your word and apply it to ourselves um, and to the world around us, that you would give us understanding, give us wisdom, the wisdom to carry out this word in a way that honors you and exalts you. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, this is the final, final teaching, the final message in the One Another series, and I chose to end with this particular one another because in a way it summarizes all of the dozens and dozens of one another's that we find in the Bible. So important is this ethic of love for one another that the Bible emphasizes it several different times in several different ways, and I'm going to tell you some of those ways here right off the bat. Later in two chapters from this passage in John 15 verses 12 and 17, Jesus repeats himself again regarding this commandment, this new commandment, that we love one another. In Romans 12.10, the Apostle Paul tells us, he says to be devoted to one another. So he says to be devoted to one another, but in brotherly love. So brotherly love is the vehicle through which we are devoted to each other as members of Christ. So there is devotion that's involved sort of the devotion, remember from Acts 2, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and prayer and the breaking of bread and so on. That's something that you have to put effort into. He also says in Romans 13, 8, that we should owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, and the person who loves his neighbor fulfills the law. We're going to come back to that verse shortly. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, the apostle Paul says Our love for one another and for all people must increase and abound. He says later in chapter 4, verse 9 there of 1 Thessalonians that God teaches us to love one another. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul commends the church for the fact that their love for one another grows, implying that it should grow for us too. So when we talk about love, in the context of Christian community, is something that should actually grow. It's meant to increase and abound. So wherever it's at now, by this time next year, should have grown exponentially. 1 Peter 1.22 says that love must be both fervent and from the heart. So take note real quick that Peter makes the connection of love being something that is emotional. 
So we'll talk about emotions in a little while as well. So love has to be fervent, and love has to be from the heart. 1 John 3.11 reads this, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 3.23 reads the same thing. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, His Son, and love one another, just as He commanded us. So loving one another is not an option. It's a command from the very mouth of our Lord Jesus. 1 John 4.7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. John continues in the next verse, verse 8 of chapter 4. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4.11 tells us that if God loves us, we also ought to love one another. If it's true that God loves us, what's the natural deduction of that? We should love one another. God abides in us then, and his, per, his love is perfected in us. And lastly, though not exhaustively, <laughs> 2 John 1.5 reiterates from the very beginning, the commandment we received is this, love one another. So obviously the Bible talks a lot about love. Love is crucial. It's essential. It's a command. It's important in Scripture. So it goes without saying that the Bible speaks about it a lot and thinks a lot about it. And while there are many different words that are used in the, in the original language, the Greek language, we're not necessarily going to go into all of them because on the one hand, we don't have time. The other, time, the other hand, it really doesn't even matter that much. You probably have heard of some of these words, agape, phileo, eros. There are many different descriptors, uh, descriptors of love. There are distinguishing features, but when you get to a word like agape or phileo, they're pretty much right on the same page with love being this sort of fully-orbed view of how you treat someone, what you're supposed to do for them or think and how you act and so on and so forth. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you my definition of love right up front, and you can disagree with it. That's fine. We can talk about it afterwards. But this is kind of, as I was studying this week, and this is sort of where I landed on, on my definition of love. Love is the lawful treatment of others. Love is the lawful, not awful, <laughs> that'd be a contradiction. Love is the lawful treatment of others in emotion, thought, word, and deed. So love is the lawful treatment of other people, the, the lawful treatment of others in your emotions, in thought, in word, and in deed. D-E-E-deed. So love is central. Love is absolutely central because God is love. The very nature and character of God, both his onto the ontology of God, his being, and in, in how he acts, the economy of God, is defined as love. In fact, one cannot really describe love without starting with God, who is love, which is to say we have to think presuppositionally about our definition of love, and this means that we have to start with Scripture. We have to start with the nature and character of God. Now, before we get too far into it, I want to sort of look at our passage and, and tease out some things there. Jesus explains to his disciples, right after he washed their feet, and right after Judas left the room in betrayal, you remember that scene, he, he explains to his disciples that he's issuing a new command. He's issuing a new command. For starters... This isn't new. 
in the sense that it's never been taught before. The Old Testament often speaks of loving God and loving your neighbor. That's not a new concept. Um, Leviticus 19 is a great passage you should know. Leviticus, Leviticus can be sort of like um, chewing nails. It can be frustrating at times. But Leviticus 19 and even chapter 26 are two central passages that you should know really well. Leviticus 19 um, speaks of loving God and loving neighbor. So this concept isn't new in the sense of it's never been, it never existed before. Like Jesus is coming with his novel teaching. Oh, by the way, well, you should love each other. That's not new in that sense. There are basically two Greek words that one could use in order to express an idea about something that's new. Um, one carries the idea of something being young in terms of age, and thus something that's not old. And the other word is this idea of fresh in terms of age, something that is not aged or expired. So the second word is actually what Jesus uses here. Jesus is giving a fresh command. A, a, a fresh command. Why is it fresh? Well, the reason it is new or fresh is because of who is saying it. Jesus is the incarnate God-man, and notice what he says. Look at your text in chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I... Who gives commands in Scripture? In the Old Testament, who gave the law to Moses through the mediation of the angels, right? God gives commandments. So already, we should be offended at this. <laughs> This new commandment I give to you. Jesus is claiming authority, subtly, but clearly. So it's fresh because he's the one giving it. It's new, it's fresh, it's all because he's giving it. And not only that, it's centered on his love for them. The command is now defined on his terms. So the feature, the feature of the new covenant that Jesus ratified is the fact that it's centered on his self-sacrificial love. That's why it's a new commandment. It's centered on his self-giving sacrifice, his self-giving love. So that's why serve and love sort of go together. In one sense, this covenant is a renewed covenant, and in another sense, it's a completely different covenant. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, you recall, he, he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them or to bring them to their appointed meaning and purpose, and that being wrapped up in Christ himself. So the law and the prophets aren't set aside, Jesus said. They're brought forward into the work of Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. So yes, the new covenant is consistent with the covenants of old, but it's also different from the ones of old because it rests entirely on Christ's death and resurrection, his broken body, his spilled out blood. So all of those old covenants you think of, think of Adam and think of Noah, uh, Abraham, David. All of those old covenants sort of come forward and find their ultimate significance in Jesus Christ. So you might say it's an old command. It's the same command from Leviticus 19. It's an old command that's br been brought forward and given sort of like a new fresh cone of paint, if you will. A coat of paint because of who Christ is and what he has done. Now the command to love one another... The command to love one another is itself a feature of the entire Bible. So again, it's not new in that sense. But it's new or fresh because of the coming of Jesus. But the principle of loving God and loving others, the two greatest commandments, 
goes all the way back from the very beginning. So it's not as though uh, the Old Testament, you know, we weren't supposed to love one another. And, you know, Jesus come along, comes along and he gives us something different. That's not the case at all. The principle of loving God and loving others, your neighbor, was built into the law of God from the very beginning. It was built into the law of God from the very beginning, which is why Jesus says what he says here. It's as though he's saying, I'm going to paraphrase, listen, you know the law of God. It's been taught to you from your youth. You are to love God, love others. But this is not going to happen if your heart is, a, is still a heart of stone. You need a heart of flesh. The very promise of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. You need regeneration. You need the law written on your heart so that God will then cause you to walk in His ways. That's what Ezekiel 36 says. In fact, the only way that any of that is going to happen is if you believe on me, if you accept the way I'm demonstrating my love for you. That's that's what's underneath all of this. So that's that's the whole key to the two verses. We are told to love one another. Look at the rest of that verse. Love one another even as I have loved you, even as Christ has loved us. So the manner in which we are commanded to carry out love for one another is solely defined, don't miss this, it's solely defined in terms of Christ's exemplary love. That's it. Those are the terms and conditions of our love for one another, Jesus Christ and His love for us. So had Jesus told everyone, had Jesus just told everyone to to love one another without grounding it in the foundational love that he has for his children, he would have sounded like your run-of-the-mill LGBTQ supporter. Just love. Just love. Like the Nike fiasco, as of recent, uh, about you know believing in something even if it means sacrificing everything. Terms, terms go undefined, and then suddenly we're sanctioning imprudent ideas like socialism and other forms of injustice. Words mean something. Words mean something. And ideas and concepts behind the words mean something too. And Jesus tells us what it means to love one another, to treat each other in a manner consistent with how Christ treated them, the them being the disciples. So that's, that, it's like basic here. This is really basic Christianity 101, but we sort of lose that when we don't ground our love for one another in the fact that Christ has loved us. Now, it's important for us to look at this a little closer, especially in light of some of the humanistic ideas that are continuing to float around unabated. Um, Since the seemingly loudest bullhorn in our culture when it comes to pride and love, hence the shirt tonight, when it comes to pride and love, is the LG Niner crowd, cult we can call them, I decided uh, to look some stuff up on how love is defined kind of curious. Since it's all about pride and love, I'm curious of what, what, what they mean. What is this all about? Now, so it took me one search to find what I wanted. <laughs> and apparently, Billboard.com has, uh, for two years now, done these love letters for Pride Month, which is in June, which, of course, uh, three years ago was when Obergefell the opinion was granted. So that, I share my birthday with Pride Month. Yay! It's fantastic. 
So apparently they, they, they're doing these love letters, and so they ask these, the quote, pop culture luminaries, that's what they call them, pop culture luminaries, they ask them to write love letters to the LGBTQ community, and the one I found was from this past summer was written by Ariana Grande. Now, I know she's a famous pop star, but if you played one of her songs, I would not be able to tell you it's her. I don't know anything about her. Um, I know she's famous. That's it. That's the extent of my knowledge. So... Since she's well known, it makes sense that she was she was on the site. So I want to I want to I want to quote to you just a little bit of what Miss Grande had to say. So in ple- please try to endure this insufferable bloviation. Okay, that's what it is. She writes this quote: "Love is like music." Okay, where's this going? Right? She says, "Love is like music. It knows no boundaries." and isn't exclusive to any one gender, sexuality, race, religion, age, or creed. It's a freedom and a, quote, I'm still quoting her, a delicious luxury that all people should be able to sink into and enjoy every moment of. End quote. We'll talk about ending your sentences with of a different time. So first, music does have boundaries, so that doesn't work. There's... There's a reason we laugh at people who cannot sing on American Idol. So that, that argument's out the window already. Second, it follows, because of the first point, that love does have boundaries, too. Um, notice the nonsensical vainglory found therein. In order to kowtow to toler- the tolerance brigade, we might call them, she has to make this love thing work in a way that is both vague and nice-sounding. So it's sort of this tightrope. It's got to be vague enough to appeal to, you know, the hundreds of letters that are in this acronym. And it also has to be nice, because that's one of the first commandments of our culture, be nice. So, so love becomes this sort of metaphysical euphoria that one can experience if they just sink into it, to use her words. It's a delicious luxury that you are supposed to sink into. So think of that favorite pie of yours that you enjoy on Thanksgiving. That's what love is. So freedom, she even talked about freedom. Freedom is freedom's bent sideways in her definition as well. So that's, that's what you have to do if you're going to throw off the perceived chains of God's law. If you're going to throw off the old fuddy-duddy religious fundamentalism you know, of this, this narrow-minded bigotry of how you define a family, you have to just... Throw it out there and make it nice sounding and vague enough to where you can convince everyone. So this type of sentimental goo is what passes today. In order to accept the absolute disgusting nature of what this crowd wants to pass, they have to dress it up in language that sounds nice. And the reason they have to dress it up is because it's ugly. So that's what sin is. But all of this... All of this is the humanistic nonsense that get pass, gets passed around in all of the high places in our culture. Public schools, universities, the media, all of it is bent on making this pride and love thing more palpable for people. Now remember the definition I gave to you at the beginning. Love is the lawful treatment of others in emotion, thought, word, and deed. Now, I get this from Romans 13.8, where Paul basically sa- he says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, 
And lest we stop reading and then fall into the humanistic trap, he continues, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So love is not without boundaries. Love is not without boundaries. It is not a freedom to do as one pleases. Love is not without boundaries. Love is carefully set within the parameters that God has laid out, and those parameters are the terms and conditions of His law word. If Miss Grande, if I may call her that, were to be consistent, then she would have to say that the rapist and the murderer is simply loving people in his or her own way. Because love has no boundaries. In today's vernacular, love is simply the affirmation of someone else's desires. You might even say the affirmation and celebration of someone else's desires. Love has been boiled down to mere feelings of sentimentality towards people. It's really a lawless love. It's a lawless love. After all, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Now, when I say that love is the lawful treatment of others, I'm saying that love must be grounded in God's law, in His Word. The humanistic doctrine of love only is essentially an antinomian doctrine. It's against the law. It's this love for evil, essentially, because an embrace of love without law is this embrace of evil. So if we go the humanistic route, we may end up like Rousseau, who, while lying with a prostitute, decided to talk to her about virtue. That happened. For Rousseau and the thousands of humanists that are left in his wake, the feelings of a person is the only thing that matters. The feelings are the only thing that matter. In this worldview, we are simply humans with emotions. We are trapped inside this cage of a body. So the body is going to do what the body is going to do. Just be sure your heart is pure and pursuing love. That's all that matters. See, the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Mago Dei. This is the, the image of God. And that means that men and women are whole beings. We are whole beings. Emotions, thinking, feeling, doing, acting, all of it is rolled together into a person we call a human being that's made in the image of God. That's not an accident. That's not a bug. That's a feature. This was God's intention all along. However, what happens when sin comes into the world, when sin enters into the picture? The ethical nature of our emotions and our thoughts and our actions towards one another become polluted. And thus our emotions, thus we have emotions that can be sinful. We can have emotions that are sinful. The uh, Bible says, you know, be angry and do not sin. It's possible to be angry and sin. We have thoughts that can be sinful. So we have emotions that can be sinful. We have thoughts that can be sinful. We can do things that are sinful. We can say things that are sinful. See, not, not until the Spirit changes the heart of a man and arrests his soul with the gospel message can he actually love as Jesus commands. Don't miss that. Not until the Spirit changes the heart of a man or a woman or a child and arrests them with the gospel message, can that person actually love the way Jesus commands us to love? Not until that law is written on the heart by the Spirit of God, not until that happens, can a man treat others lawfully. So that's why I say law, love is the lawful treatment. Because love is grounded. 
it's grounded in something objective. It's not floating off into LGBTQ space. Love is the lawful treatment of others in emotion, in thought, in word, and in deed. And this is what we are commanded to carry out towards each other. In fact, according to Jesus, one of the most powerful evangelistic tools in our arsenal is our love for one another. Look at verse 35. He says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is a clear echo of Deuteronomy 4 when God says to Israel that if they follow the covenant and carry out God's law, what will happen? It will be their wisdom and understanding in the sight of the nations. There's a clear connection. To the degree that we are aligned with God's law, when our lives are governed on His terms, that's the degree in which we will then love others. We are called to love, but that love has to be informed. It must be informed with some sort of presuppositional definition. You can't just say it. There's meaning behind it. The definitions that we find are all God's definitions, and the Bible gives it to us. So a final couple of things to consider. One, love is anchored in the fulfillment of God's law toward others. We've sort of established that. That's what love is. If we're going to love one another, we have to go with the same definition of what love is, what the Bible tells us love is, and that means it's anchored in the fulfillment. He who loves his neighbor has what? Fulfilled the law, Romans 13.8. So it's anchored in the fulfillment of God's law. That's abundantly clear. But there's also a ditch that we have to avoid, and I'm afraid it's a ditch that Christians can fall into all of the time. So I'm going to press on you all a little bit. One of the things we say sometimes is this, and you may have heard it, maybe you've said it. This person offended me, and though I don't feel loving towards her, I'm going to be nice and it will be fine. Right? This, this, this guy... He did something to me. He said something to me. I'm offended by it. Maybe a sin or not. I don't know. And I'm not going to deal with that. I, I, I don't think I'm governed enough in my own spiritual walk, so to speak, to overlook that offense. But I'm not going to confront it. I'm going to let it sit there. And, and then when we get together, I'm just going to smile and be nice all the while bitterness is running through your veins. What are we assuming here in a situation like this? Well, for one, we're assuming that love is merely this external thing, right? And the definite, and I, I was very careful and intentional about the words that I chose for that definition. Love is the lawful treatment of others in emotion, thought, word, and deed. Notice that emotion is there. Emotion is there. Love is not merely omitting murder and gossip. Love is not merely the omission of murder and gossip. Just because you didn't murder someone or gossip about someone today doesn't mean that you have loved them. That's just that's half the picture. Right? It's sort of the, the negativism of the law, the positive, like, thou shalt not murder. Yes, but what's implied in that? What's the positivism behind it? Well, we're supposed to protect life. So it's not merely the omission of murder and gossip. It's also not the omission of anger, jealousy, and covetousness. Love, listen, love is treating something or someone lawfully, 
not just in our actions, in our words, the external things, but in our emotions and in our thoughts. So you, you tell me, can you love someone if you're smiling at them, but inside you're bitter towards them? Can't. It's not love. It's not love. That's why in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema of Israel, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Jesus says in Mark 12, interestingly enough, quoting that, that we should love with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So there's sort of a chiastic connection there. We have heart and mind go together, but you also have soul and strength together. It's the entirety of our being. It's the entirety of who you, what makes you, you. So it does no good to hold a grudge against someone and refuse to talk to them about the offense and then you smile at them at church. <laughs> you smile at them over a cup of coffee. It's not really loving people. Chris read 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul says there, even if he gave away all of his possessions to feed the poor, is that good? That's a good thing, we would agree. It's good to help others. He said, even if I did that and I did not have love, don't miss that. Is that loving? Yes. To feed the hungry? Absolutely. To help clothe someone? To help someone when they're in a bad spot? Absolutely. That's loving. But Paul clearly delineates between the two. You can feed the poor and hate them. You can do it. It's possible. So yes, it's loving, but love cannot be reduced down to mere altruism. There are a lot of philanthropists that are going to hell. See, love is lawful treatment. It's lawful treatment in all areas of a man's life. All areas. So love with your mind, yes. Love with your thoughts, yes. Love with your deeds, yes. But don't forget you're supposed to love with your emotions, too. See, loving one another isn't easy. It's not easy. Not when each... Not when each of us, even in this room, has within us things that are unlovable. Is that true? All of us have things that are unlovable. The way we get cranky when we're hungry, kids and parents, all adults, frankly, right? <laughs> the hangry thing. See, see not, it's hard to love each other. I think that's why Jesus draws attention to us so much. I think that's why the New Testament draws so much attention to it because it's very challenging because there are things about each of us in this room that are unlovable the way we're cranky the way we're irritable the way we're impatient all of these things if we're supposed to love one another that presupposes there's something lovable right i mean there's is it conditional or is it unconditional that's the question see the key is the key to obeying this command is rooted in something so profound something so unimaginable that when you grasp this concept in your life, it changes everything. What's the key? The gospel of the kingdom of God. It's simple. Jesus Christ entered into time and space to love the unlovable, right? To love the unlovable. We didn't choose Him, the Bible says. He chose us. And that, their friends, is the beauty of all of this. He didn't look at us and find something that He could work with. Oh, look at her. She, I know she can be impatient. But there's just something love, lovable 
You know, as if the Father's election of us was based on our performance. Right? He didn't, he didn't look at us and find something that He could work with. That's not the good news. He didn't look at us to see how truly lovable that we potentially could be or that we really are. No, He looked at us, He saw the corrupt nature of our lusts, and He bestowed His sovereign grace and love on us in Christ. That's the beauty. So we, are, we were sinful, He made us holy. We were polluted, He cleaned us up and clothed us in His righteousness. We hated Him. We hated Him so much we hung Him on a tree. And then what happened? He gave Himself in love. So friends, I, I'm convinced when we know this love, when we experience this love, when we truly believe this love that God has, we are then compelled to go and imitate this love. I think that's the key to loving one another. That's the key to all of the one another's. Want to serve somebody? Look what Jesus did. He served you. We're called to love one another. Who gave us the most shining example of what love truly is? That's the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have gathered as a thankful people endeavoring to mimic the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. And we confess that we don't always carry out this love, and that's because we are oftentimes trying to love on our own terms instead of your terms. I ask and pray that you would help us to, to truly love one another, to take up our cross and extend forgiveness and grace to others in a manner that's consistent with what you have done in and through your Son. So help us, Lord, by your Spirit to love one another and may the watching world be stunned at what it sees. We ask all of this in the sovereign name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King, whom we serve. Amen.